Metricast. What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Hold on to your butts. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Westman demands. Now this affects Iris. Um, Iris, where are you? What you feel only matters to you. I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. Iris, I have a tip for you. Don't take drugs! Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host Iris and I'm here with my older brother, who I'm thankful for. Wesley. Today... We're talking a movie, a biographical fantasy, streaming and available on Pluto TV from 2004, Finding Neverland. What was that? Was that a Scottish brogue? <laughs> yep, that was my attempt at one. Man. You tried Johnny it. Depp has that. He's got it. Uh, like Finding Neverland. <laughs> Neverland. Neverland. I don't know. It's hard. It's like, um, what is it that Scottish people can't say? Purple burglar alarm. <laughs> 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 How do they say it? Purple burglar alarm, alarm, and it's it's the best thing on YouTube. Purple burglar alarm. Yep. <laughs> so why can't I say biopic? I, I guess you can, as long as you understand the etymology of the word or whatever that that's a portmanteau word or a, or a, a condensing of biographical picture. Biopic. It never felt right to me once I understood what it was. Biopic. You can. You can say biopic. Okay, so this is a biographical fantasy, otherwise known as a biopic. You called this a rando movie, but I think this is a rather appropriate Thanksgiving feel-good movie, don't you? Sure. But I definitely found myself channeling some Wesleyness in watching Finding Le- Neverland. Oh yeah, because Wesley also channeled some Wesleyness. So how did how did, what is your distinction? I found myself stone-faced and completely detached from the whole Porthos <laughs> the bear scene. Uh, look, if you're going... So look, this was kind of before this movie established itself to be what it is. Because you don't even almost notice it. You do, but maybe as a kid you don't notice it when they, they seamlessly transition between the actual Western setting and the fantasy, like the backyard and the Western fantasy, right? Yeah, pretty seamless. When they're seamless. doing the Cowboys and Indians. Yeah, go Mark Forster. Which I can say because they call it Cowboys and Indians because it was 100 years ago. But even that is not a real set. Like the fantasy set is a kid's idea of what the Wild West was like. But still, a kid can make the distinction so that I personally feel like if he were going to, in a fantasy sequence, dance with a bear, it should have been a real bear. Brad Pitt did it. They could have done it. But it was it was a real bear in the fantasy sequence. No, it was a dude in a in a bear suit. Oh, wait, like a real bear, like a la Grizzly Man style. Yeah, well, not a grizzly bear, but there are trained black bears and stuff. And he could have done gone around. He could have twirled a, a freaking bear around. If I had the clout as Johnny Depp, I would have insisted. I would have been like, I'll be in my trailer until you bring me Bart the Bear. Bart the bear. I thought he died. He did. There are like four Barts. 
My favorite bear scene in all of literary history is, of course, the bear who makes his appearance at the end of Henderson the Rain King. The roller coaster bear? Yes, who wets himself. Poor bear. And they're like terrified and holding each other. Man, I don't know if that's a spoiler. That's the deepest cut so far on or whatever movies. So I'm watching Porthos the bear or Porthos the dog become Porthos the bear. And I'm just like, "Mm." the magic is lost on me. And to be honest, I don't think that the magic ever really sunk in. I don't find finding Neverland to be magical and delightful. And what are we doing then? Whimsy. No, no, I'm not saying that. But I'm not saying that it's bad. I find it to be more like a gentle, calming balm. And I think the tone is entirely set by Johnny Depp's performance which is some kind of like relaxant for my central nervous system, like watching him and his self-possession and his innocence, even though he's kind of a jerk, is very calming to me. Doesn't seem like he's a jerk, man. People are on the other side of that now. I'm not talking about recent Johnny Depp canceling stuff. I'm talking about J.M. Barry is kind of a big jerk to his to his wife. Uh, yeah. So you felt that this movie, would you say that it's bull's pizzle? Was it absolute rubbish from start to finish? Was that a Dustin Hoffman quote? Uh, not Well, I think it was one of the theater goers. Like, you want the calming, soothing, uh, sleepy time tea presence of J.M. Barry in your tragic household? <laughs> How is my household tragic? Huh? Oh, you mean like if I if I was like a widow with four yeah. boys? If, if Brian kicked off with cancer of the jaw <laughs> and you were like <laughs> coughing and not feeling so hot yourself, you'd want this dude coming around? Well... You know, Sylvia didn't seem all that interested in having a romantic relationship. She seemed perfectly content with, you know, his surrogate dadness and his presence and him generally looking out for them. Was she living entirely for her many, many boys and was just like, nope, all done with life and love and kind of thing? Because both Roger Ebert and Richard Roper, who doesn't count because he's not a real movie critic, said that that they were charmed by Johnny Depp because there's no hint whatsoever of impropriety with the the little boys. There's no hint of creepiness. But does that apply for okay, fine, he plays Barry like wanting to be only a good presence in the boy's life. But does that apply to Sylvia, the Kate Winslet character as well? Like she's just like, no, I'm all good. You come around and there's no no hint. There was definitely a hint, I think. Maybe it was us or me projecting. But at the very least, there was some kind of Mary Poppins Bert thing happening. Yeah, there was deep affection between the two of them. I think that's clear. Johnny Depp is kind of at the height of his androgynous beauty in this movie like chiseled and perfect and like i find his face to be mesmerizing but he's also all smooth down there ken style (laughs) you know what i mean whereas yeah maybe julie christie that's her that's the mom's name right mrs de marier she's like look at you you're all flushed and i think that there was still some life and vitality sexual vitality to uh sylvia but that wasn't a foremost importance to her And I think that she also knew that she was going to kick it soon, too. Mm. Well, she did know before any of this happened. uh, She didn't want to go over it again, her symptoms. And he found out that she knew something, which is terrible, which may have been why, why when she saw his influence, she was more welcoming of a rando because she maybe was worried she was on her way out. But he's also not a rando. She knows from the instant he introduces himself that he's not only a playwright, but a rather famous one. Right. Which is not not indicative uh, in the opening scene when his play bombs horribly. 
Right. <laughs> so he's just in a downturn, a down period. Well, you have to have that down period in order for, you know, Peter Pan to be a rapturous delight and success. Yeah, it's just a gully. He'll get over it. A little gully. Kate Winslet, I think, is a passionate actor, and I think she's very breathy, and you can see it read a lot on her face, and obviously she's got a lot going on in her life. But she smacks to me as a normal person, which I think is a real strength for her as an actor. I do think that Johnny Depp, for some reason, has to earn it for me every time. And I'm like, oh, he's working hard on that Scottish accent, staying faithful to J.M. Barry as much as this movie doesn't really stay all that faithful to J.M. Barry. Uh, very important to him. But behind those chiseled cheekbones, I think he has real ability. And so he does sell this for me. It's weird to see kind of a straightforward Johnny Depp character where he's not weird. Right. Like he's not hiding behind any makeup or costuming. I mean, I guess it's pretty elaborate costuming, but his face is just naked and out there. And, uh, and and all pretty and all that stuff. In contrast to, apparently this movie was held on to for a year. There was some rights issues with the Barry estate and Peter Pan, which came out in two th- 2003. So they agreed to hold this movie for a year so that they can say Barry's actual words based on the book or something like that. So this movie actually was held on to for a year. It says 2004, but it was completed and ready in 2003, which is the same year as Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. And that is noteworthy because Johnny Depp does the Jack Sparrow accent. It's not 100%. He tries to change it up because also Jack Sparrow is not Scottish or whatever, but it's definitely there. You like your ear picks up right away, right? And it's almost like he came right from Pirates as I understand it to do this movie and I'm like, "Ah, he did Captain Jack even though it's kind of weird." And likewise, apparently at one point when he's all grumbly and flicking through the playbill for Peter Pan, Dustin Hoffman was supposed to be portrayed like the mom character as Captain Hook and he's like, "I'm not doing Hook again." And so they had to change it. <laughs> but it's weird, like this time period and this that's only what it would have been at the time of filming three years after the release of Hook. So they're both in this sort of piratey fantasy, Peter Panny kind of world. It just it yeah. felt, felt strange to me because they're both playing like normal people who are anything but normal because we just saw them in these fantastical roles. Yeah, and Peter Pan adjacent roles as Captain Hook and Jack Sparrow, respectively. Yeah, but all that to say, I think he didn't really, Johnny Depp in particular, did an admirable job of really selling this role, which is maybe sort of against type at the time. Because of its restraint and its simplicity. um, You know, I feel like pretty boys are always trying to shake off that pretty boy label and get grungy. Yeah, Ryan Phillippe, the way of the gun style. (laughs) Right. But he de- he has definitely moved into that stage in his life where he looks like he smells. <laughs> in this movie? Right? No, no, no. Now. Johnny oh, Depp. yeah. Well, he's old and he does smell. He's greasy and he always wears those blue tinted glasses. He's kind of like in his Billy Bob Thornton mode. Yeah. Like, but um, and so it's really hard not to take all of the baggage, the varied and vastly different performances and then all of the personal stuff that's come to the public light about Johnny Depp and Amber, Amber Heard, etc. It's hard not to project all that onto this very innocent Jam Barry character who is played by Johnny Depp as being very restrained and kind of um, very childlike. And that's in contrast to the Freddie Highmore character, who kind of never has a chance to be a child. Why did you say that Freddie Highmore looks... So before we started recording, you said that Freddie Highmore 
Looks like an apple. Why is that? He's just a little head sticking out of the collar, and he's got like a bright, shiny face. He looks like a little apple. He's just like a little dumpling head and an apple dumpling head. It really bothers me that people think that this season's all about pumpkins. Did you know that pumpkin season is also apple season? Oh, I'm very sorry that it's challenging. Look, you can't, you're up against the white women, and the white women cannot stop. What is your opinion on the PSL? I got no problem with it. I think that it's weird that the fanaticism starts in particular for the season. Like it's like McRib or something. People freak out. It's like, oh, it's time for PSLs like on September 1st or something. I find that a little bit weird. But as a flavor, I have no problem with pumpkin or pumpkin spice. Pumpkin pie being, I think, dad's favorite in which they have all year round. I can't decide what I'm more surprised about, that you've got nothing against it or that you knew what the PSL is. Absolutely. Wow. White women are my favorite thing. A white woman in particular, <laughs> who is no fan of the PSL. You know what we discovered this year is Kelly Ray was fascinated to discover that when someone bought one for her, she's actually, she actually likes pumpkin spice lattes, but also because they're not really pumpkin flavored. They are the spices attributed to pumpkins in the drink. Like nutmeg and stuff? Yeah, and cinnamon and nutmeg and stuff. She's like, oh, they're not pumpkin coffees. They're the spices. So Brian got me a PSL as a little surprise treat. And then after I had diarrhea, I was like, you know what? <laughs> I think for the for PSLs in the future, just half sweet. And he was like, that was half sweet. <laughs> I was like, what? Oh, what? Man. Yeah, that's how they get them. It's like caffeine is the new tobacco. Uh, the Starbucks drinks, some of them bear, don't even have coffee in them. They're just Sunday sugar bombs, man. Oh, my gosh. That's how they get the kids. And then you're hooked. I don't know how to come back from this tangent other than... <laughs> no, this is this just is... a nice warm blanket of a fall uh, Thanksgiving season movie. Yeah, good for the whole family. Watch it and be inspired and be transported back to the imaginative world of your childhood. And you're going to bring it up. So I'm going to head you off at the pass because uh, Mark Forster was responsible for A Man Called Otto. But I was no fan of that movie. And Mark Forster seems an unlikely person because in the promo stuff for this, the junket for this movie, they were like, oh, yeah, man. And I was really excited to see this from the dude who directed Monsters Ball, among <laughs> other things. And later he went on to World War Z. World War Z. But I almost couldn't trust it. And Kate Winslet is no stranger to hardcore nudity kind of roles and stuff. And Mark Ford, it's like, they're all like, okay, guys, let's keep it civil and let's keep it family friendly for this one. Try to hold it in. Try to restrain it. This is like a whole bunch of hardcore filmmakers making a highly restrained and highly PG movie. Right. And how do you do that? I guess you evoke a sense of imagination. And it's maybe, I think, the movie's greatest strength where we seamlessly transition from fantasy to reality and vice versa. And you see it up, up top and, and they kind of continue that thread so that when it happens, the big reveal at the end, you're not like, what? Like, you know, it makes sense. I'd be interested in exploring this connection further because the hardcoreness goes all the way up to the producing ranks like Richard Gladstein who was a mentor of mine when I was in the Stark program and who was a very generous mentor was also he also was a producer on Quentin Tarantino's early films 
Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Tulusma. I'm a writer, an emotional intelligence coach, and the host of Humanize with Blue Tulusma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on Electricast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. Electricast. I mean, maybe you just got to do what you got to do to make it. And maybe Mark Forster made his impression on Hollywood with films like Monsters Ball. And then they're like, okay, we're going to give you the big family-friendly studio piece. As I was mentioning earlier, the Barry story is challenging. Barry is a very short little guy and had a giant walrus mustache and stuff. And Johnny Depp, like if he had known someone's going to play you 100 years from now, it wouldn't have been someone who looked like Johnny Depp. They took a lot of liberties with the chronology. Yes, both Sylvia and her husband were ill and passed away, but not at the time. The husband was alive and well during all the way up to the opening of Peter Pan. Did you notice there was no postscript on all the magical, wonderful things the kids grew up to get to? Yes, I did notice that. There was no base on a true story. There was no J.M. Barry died happy and childless at the age of blah, blah, blah. Nothing like that. Apparently, Peter Pan wasn't even based on the Peter kid. We don't know why he named his character Peter Pan. It was actually based more on the son, Michael, who I guess had to grow up too fast or felt like a very adult kind of person. And he was, and Barry was like, this kid really should enjoy his childhood more. But the Peter kid, who was forever associated with Peter Pan, had a hard time, threw himself under a train at like the age of 60. The other three what? boys, none of them made it past 21. Uh, just it, it seems very, very tragic. So they took this little kernel, this little seed of hope and magic that was part of this these kids' lives, this family's life, and they made a movie about it. A movie inspired by it. Right. And so it's nice, and you should all hug your children closer or whatever, because they might throw themselves under a train. I think the script could have solved a lot of problems by having the Llewellyn Davies dad around. You know, all of these questions of infidelity and inappropriateness with the boys and all that kind of stuff wouldn't exist, but maybe we would have lost a lot of that drama and then the Jam Barry character would have been seen as, um, you know, he's he's like a larger than life character in his, in his simplicity. And maybe we would have lost some of that, too. But I remember from one of the behind the scenes featurettes a while ago in my research for preparing to meet with Richard Gladstein, they were talking about how producer Nellie Bellflower basically found this story or found the play and got the rights and assembled the team to develop the script. And it's one of these lovely creative producer driven projects that was like a big inspiration to me when I was trying to come up as a producer and stuff. But do you know who Nellie Bellflower is? Nope. <laughs> uh -oh. ah, one of the few one of the few moments where I get to blow your mind. Nellie Bellflower, Oscar nominated Best Picture Producer. Nellie Bellflower of Finding Neverland was the tree in The Last Unicorn. <laughs> that's, that's pretty random, man. So she was all trucking around in like the early 80s being a tree. And she's like, I'm going to be a producer. 
<laughs> I'm just saying there's no height or depth that you can't come from and then be a producer. There's she is full on there is no immortality than the love of trees. <laughs> and like all trapping what's the wizard's name in her boobs? Schmendrick the Great. Schmendrick. Ah, it's I, Schmendrick. <laughs> Sit down. Have a taco. <laughs> My problem with the Barry character types is that because they don't have a single mean bone in their body, somehow the bad things that they do are excused. He wasn't ignoring his wife out of malice. He didn't, you know, basically abandon her because he was mean. He just, he simply did it because he was enraptured by his flights of fancy. And it's like, no, that's no excuse. If you're a real adult in a real relationship, you say, you know what? This isn't working for me anymore. I'm really sorry. And I wish it didn't come to this. But I'm going to spend all my time with this family over here. He's a child. And children have no regard for their parents. All they want to do is play with their friends. And they, all these kids were his friends. But she didn't have... I mean, she. I wondered why she kept putting up with him. She kept giving him all these chances. You know, if you're not going to invest, then we're going to be done. And she, I was like, weren't you done a half an hour ago? But uh, <laughs> she makes her own choices. He's so clearly gone that when she hooks up with Mr. What's-His-Name, I was a little bit surprised that he was like, he, he was accusatory or he was resentful. Yeah. I thought he was going to be like, I wish you every happiness and I'm sorry I couldn't have been that person. And then she smooches mm. him on the cheek. It seemed like we're neatly taking care of the wife problem. So that he can focus on his strangely platonic relationship with Sylvia. It just, it spoke to that level of discord in the family and made it not entirely a fantasy where the two families would join and become one big happy household sharing the, the cleaning staff, you know? That seemed to be his dream, right? That there was some symbiosis between the two families? Not sure. Just in his life, he needed to reconcile his weird passions and affection for this family with his wife, who he didn't dislike. Like, they didn't hate each other. He just kept disappearing, and she was like, what's up? Yeah, he also kept inviting her to the park and stuff, and she was like, no thanks. Uh, well, there you go. So it was mutual. I don't know. It's all muddy and, and fantasy, and I don't know who to point a finger at. Is Mother Hook was she wrong to be concerned? Like, you think, oh, she's Captain Hook, but she was, she, it's true. She was looking out for her grieving daughter, trying to protect her grandsons. And he says in no uncertain terms, after the kid is gone, after her child dies, tragically, and they're walking along and talking about her being forced to co-parent with him. And he's like, I loved your daughter very much. And I was like, well, there it is. There's kind of revelation. But I didn't feel like anybody, it was neutered enough that I didn't have to worry too much about who got butt hurt in the, the interactions. I guess because we got Peter Pan out of it, and that's really all we need. Do you find Peter Pan to be, I mean, I know Peter Pan's a classic and all, but do you find it to be a particularly relevant story to you? With respect, I find Peter Pan to be so tiresome at this point. Really? It's just the, all the saturation of Peter Pan in my life is just too... And look, I like all that stuff. I liked the 2003 Peter Pan I liked Hook. I'm so over it because they keep making Peter Pans. Uh, they keep making 
Tarzan movies, and it's just like the we got to get some new stuff in public domain because I am sick to death. That said, I like the Peter Pan ride at Disneyland, <laughs> Peter Pan's flight and stuff. The best, and, and I do like the story. I mean, it speaks to the you know, Neverland and forever remaining a child and maintaining that innocence. All that stuff is great. But also this movie, 80% of it takes place in the real world where people die and there are consequences to being absent from your household and your your spouse and stuff. And, and kids grow up. It's fine as a fantasy. You can't live your life as Peter Panning, you know, as an adult. That was a reference to Hook. Can you not? You can't live Peter Pan as an adult because Peter Pan is forever a child. And that is great. It's it's also kind of where that story needs to remain as an affectionate memory from your childhood. Like if you see an, a grown person being Peter Pan, you're like, oh, that's scary. The closest thing we have to an adult <laughs> Peter Pan is Michael Jackson. And that's not going to work. Oh, who, who literally had a Neverland ranch. And I don't mean to say that like I'm not going to make that funny or whatever. I'm just saying Peter Pan doesn't work as a fully functioning adult. I thought Kelly McDonald made a great Peter Pan. Uh, yeah, she uh, continues the long-standing tradition of women playing Peter Pan. And such a contrast to her other Llewellyn-related role. <laughs> you know, when they're on the bench and they're chatting at the very end and then J.M. Barry gives Freddie Highmore a hug, I found that to be really striking because I realized that he basically never touches them gotta be careful and also wasn't it through six layers of clothes and an overcoat and gloves yeah and outside and in the park and public and stuff right? like that so the oldest boy literally has the moment where he becomes a man he has a scene where he becomes a man in this movie yep barry says and there it is you've changed you've transformed in front of my eyes did you have that moment in me personally when i was like i am now a man mm -hmm. i don't think so I think that like Barry, I retain some sense of childhood or irresponsibility. Like I just decided I was never going to learn Excel. I flat out refused in school to learn to use the card catalog system. And I was right in doing that because it's now entirely obsolete. But there are blind spots that I simply refuse to do. I'm just not going to adult in those respects. I hate paperwork and I will let things go completely to hell for lack of filling out paperwork or, or maintaining diligence on, on insurance and stuff. Oh, I hate all that crap. I mean, there are moments in my life where I was like, ah, maybe too young for this, but I like forged ahead anyway. Keeping it alive, keeping yep. the innocence alive. All right, so then does Finding Neverland work for you? It worked in the same <laughs> stone-faced, I guess, typical Wesley fashion. I watched it and I was like, I'm not, look, oh, okay, I see what he's doing there and the strength and Mark Forster's stamp in his direction. Why does he deserve to be here? Oh, I can see it in the seamless transition between reality and fantasy. And all that was neat and lovely. And we're supposed to not really be seeing it for ourselves as much as through the eyes of the boys and trying to maintain a stranglehold on their innocence, on their boyhood. All that's great, you know, but it felt convenient to me that the dad was out of the picture it felt convenient that sylvia then became ill which absolved him of being a hypocrite to his wife see nothing's going on she's sick she doesn't want to do anything anyway it felt like an appropriation of history and factual events saving mr Banks style the the wife was neatly taken care of because she found love or happiness somewhere else and was still there at his premiere and to give him a kiss on the cheek 
Johnny Depp said that Mark Forster was good at manufacturing emotion. And then he clarified that comment by saying that he really makes sure that you feel a certain emotion going into every scene because he rejects inauthenticity altogether. But I think it was a little bit telling because I think that this movie was manufactured emotion kind of from the start. How do we push all the buttons on an otherwise seemingly unromantic story to make it feel goody? I think I felt that sort of the whole time. This feels like a very fall trench coat PSL kind of movie to me. So you were resisting the manipulation most of the time? Well, that's what movies do are, are forced or imposed manipulation of your emotions. You're looking at a screen and a bunch of people playing people that they're not trying to make you feel emotions. And sometimes it works more than others. But I got nothing against Finding Neverland. It had a, a nice dreamy quality that when it opens up into the fantasy stuff, I did feel it a little bit when uh, they did the stupid thing at the end when they're in Neverland. And I was like, this is silly because we've seen in movies that year, as a matter of fact, we had seen much more immersive Neverland kind of qualities. This always still had a kind of a stage aspect, you know, where, oh, there's the fawn right there <laughs> nibbling the branch or whatever. It felt appropriate tonally. And that's the best that I can say for what this movie tried to achieve. I think it did it. Good way to dampen everyone's Thanksgiving spirit, Wes. What? She gets up, walks out into Neverland at the end, and then dies. <laughs> And we do a fade from the glow of the Neverland setting sun to her pile of dirt grave. She's gone someplace better. That's <sighs> what they're trying to communicate. Pile of dirt grave. You Jeez. know what this movie is? This movie is a fades to white kind of movie. Well, that seems neutral enough. You know, the, the terrible stuff in real life and in the movie, the terrible things happen to this poor family. It's made, it's more wistful and magical. And then the movie fades to white because fading to black would have been too ominous. I do find that Neverland, that finding Neverland works and that despite the machinations or manipulations, it is soothing and calming and balming. Sometimes, I mean, look, a lot of this movie is from the kid's perspective and it's meant to evoke innocence and magic where you're not supposed to question the intents of adults. It's almost as though Sylvia and the dad, you can't hide the coughing from the kids forever. You can't ignore the fact that Barry is having issues at home, even though he's going to come and play with you almost every day in the park or whatever. Uh, so, But maybe their relationship is fine as the kids perceive it or whatever. A lot rests on the kids. Uh, little uh, apple-faced Freddie Highmore has a big career ahead of him or whatever. But you don't, you, but you know, uh, it, it's, you got to resist the schmaltz because if you hand stupid Michael the stupid rope and give him too much credit, then he's going to let go of the stupid rope and somebody's going to get hurt. And this movie didn't shy away from that stuff. It was just more from a kid's perspective where bones will heal and fractured marriages, the people will find love and all that kind of stuff. It was fine. It was just fine. It was all right. Yeah, it was all right. Everybody, you know, whether or not they, they live or die or end up happy or end up sad, it's 100 years ago, so they're all dead anyway. So it's official and all right from Wes. A good from Iris for this Thanksgiving season family film, 818-835-0473 or whatever movies at gmail.com. We love to hear from you, so please reach out. We also appreciate your five-star reviews and smashing that subscribe button. Nope. <laughs> And if appropriate, giving us five star reviews. Thank you for listening to this discussion on 
Finding Neverland from 2004. And happy Thanksgiving. We'll see you next time. Electric Acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for Season 2 of the Wanna Bet Podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that Season 2 starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. No more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric acid. Electric acid.